Hello everyone, it's Friday the 20th of November and welcome to episode 32 of the Kite Podcast 2020 with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. And what a week it has been in political circles, but also in the farming news, including, of course, a certain interview on the Andrew Marr show, which I know Chris is itching to talk about. So I'll leave it to him to pick apart before his market report. It links nicely, however, to today's theme in Kite Podcast Land, which is all about Brexit and trade. With just 42 days to go until the new year, there remain a multitude of unanswered questions. And so with this in mind, we thought it was probably a good idea to address some of them. To help us in our Brexit deal or no deal quest, we welcome Andrew Kike to the show. Andrew is Director General of the Provision Trade Federation. We also welcome our in-house guest today, everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Chris, you've been pretty active on Twitter this week when it comes to the Secretary of State's interview on Sunday, and I am very intrigued to know where you are for your market report today. (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Kike on the show, my eminent leader at the PTF, but I'm also disappointed, disappointed with our Secretary of State, because I thought our Halloween special podcast would be the scariest thing we saw this year, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Eustace has topped us all with his horror show on the Andrew Moore (laughs) program. And he's gone one better yesterday with the FWI Farmers Weekly podcast. Uh, And I say, and I quote rather, perhaps we'll see anchor light in silver wrapping, which I can't believe it's not Lurpak on the side. So there, (laughs) keep digging. So I'm in Oxford Street this morning shopping for Mr. George because he needs, clearly needs a few things. But what's on my list, I hear you ask? What's on your list, Chris? (laughs) What's on your list, Chris? (laughs) A new hearing aid, because clearly... (laughs) For the last four years, he hasn't been listening to people like Andrew and all the other associations. Obviously, lots of soil. He needs lots of soil to fill in his humongous holes he's been digging. And then onto a toy shop, I think. I think for a new bag of marbles. He's obviously lost his for the time being. I think a cuddly unicorn and a model gunboat. A model gunboat. Because he seems pretty keen to be letting loose real ones against our allies in the North Sea on fishing. Maybe Andrew would like to comment on that. I think he needs an economics book about taxes and imports. And obviously, packs of Lurpak, not silver <laughs> wrapping. <laughs> the only problem is I don't really know where to deliver all my fantastic shopping. The only dress I have for Mr. George is George Eustace, care of HM Government, Cloud Cuckoo Land, somewhere over the rainbow, not in Europe. Andrew knows where I can get hold of him but somebody clearly needs to drag him off his JCB uh, digging all those enormous holes so before the main event my report and what a week I'd say we've had a pretty good week Uh, the GDT was up again 1.8% Um, So of the last five auctions, four have been up and only one down. In Europe, there's been more stability uh, on butter, no movement on Dutch and French, German down a touch. But traders basically reporting stable prices. 
And that's significant because you'll remember the emergency stocks of PSA butter that the EU um, sorted in the spring during the first lockdown. They basically paid for companies to store uh, butter, skim milk, powder and cheese to take that product off the market. The timescale of that is now coming to an end. So it's coming back out of PSA. So 70,000 tonnes of butter were stored. There's 30,000 tonnes left now, and it's come out without affecting the market just yet. But the problem is it's probably gone from public visible storage into invisible private ones. Uh, So we're not quite sure whether it will have an effect on the market, but it's not having one at the moment. There's hardly any skim milk powder in store either, and the price of that has stabilised this week. Tiny fall on the official listings with feed, with food grade, a tiny rise on feed grade from the traders. In the UK, cream dropped to 130, but it's now back to 140. So another positive. Perhaps that's a, an early Christmas boost. Uh, butter is similar to what it was and stable and spot milk has withstood a David Stowe shutdown and a fair bit more milk being put on the market. That's uh, still around the 30p level. So again, pretty good. The EU futures are the same. So stability there. But in New Zealand, whole milk prices are up. Skim milk prices are up. Butter prices are up. And the uh, farm gate returns obviously uh, doing much better. Cheese is pretty good in the UK, still the same as it was. In Europe, a slight fall with Gouda, mozzarella, weakishly the same. But all in all, then, a few positives, uh, a few positive this week, showing the markets coping pretty well with lockdown. So that's it from me. On to the main event, Mr. Andrew. Go easy on him, guys. I've duped him into coming on this show, so be gentle. I don't want him metaphorically sending me out the front door of PTHQ with a cardboard box like Prime Minister Cummings was last Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the show and uh, thank you for coming on to give us your thoughts. We do really appreciate it. Um, You worked in the corridors of power as a career civil servant in DEFRA for a number of years on, on lots of different issues before joining the FDF and then the PTF. Um, if you were still in DEFRA, what action would you be taking right now, given the amount of uncertainty out there at the moment, and the fact that there's only around 40 days to go until the end of the transition period? Yeah, thanks. I'd sort of pick you up on the right now. I mean, the key is actually the actions that should have been taken already. Mm-hmm. Um, we've known that Brexit is coming for the best part of four years, um, and the shape of what will change on the 1st of January has been known for many months. And yet the government information campaign and the preparations behind that have been rather slow out of the blocks, um, to put it mildly. In my time in the civil service and in, I started off in the old math, which shows how long, how old I am. Um, But I had three major crises, um, some of which you will remember, foot and mouth twice, BSE and a fuel tanker driver's strike. So the idea of contingency planning and crisis management is not new um, to government and certainly not new to my former colleagues in on the agriculture and environment side of these things. And 
there is always a lessons learned after previous crises. Um, I think people maybe have kind of lost the corporate memory a little bit of some of these things. So the important thing is um, to, to have a plan. Plans don't always survive the first contact with, with the enemy. But to me, and putting it as diplomatically as I, I can, I think there still seems to be a certain amount of improvisation in, in what's going on. But above all else, you need a very clear communications strategy. And um, I think maybe it's a symptom of uh, the, the, the times that we're, we're so used now to, to internet communication. I, I'll come on to COVID in a minute because that's clearly a complication in terms of, of other forms of interaction. But the idea that you post something on a website and job done, it's there, people need to go and look at it. And if they don't, it's not our fault because we put it up on the website. Yeah, That yeah. really is not enough. Um, and although my trade association, Provision Trade Federation, uh, big shout out for us, we do all we can with our members, various forms of communication, and we are a partner in setting up um, a new dedicated website, the EU Exit Food Hub. Um, but there are an awful lot of smaller businesses in particular who have not been prudent enough to join a trade association. So they don't have access to those peer groups. They don't have access to those networks. And of course, they're busy running their businesses. Um, and this is where COVID comes in. The Brexit type challenges would be overwhelming enough for a small business anyway, without the other major challenge. Um, the one thing you don't want to do is to have managed two crises at the same time. But unfortunately, although one of them was foreseeable and could have been prepared for a lot earlier, COVID clearly took us all by surprise. Mm. Um, and I think you know, it is really, my heart goes out to particularly the smaller businesses, because by definition, and this is, uh, Chris has already referred to the fact that George Eustace might need to buy an economics textbook. Um, there's another aspect to that which is that you are you have the appropriate capacity and staff for the needs of your business in a normal steady state. You don't have a couple of spare people who can suddenly learn how to do customs export declarations. You don't have people who are there to repurpose your supply chain and find new routes to market if you're hit by a COVID crisis. Um, and if you are in one of the sectors that is serving the food service sector and, and the pub and restaurant trade, you know, your income is plummeting at the same time as you're having to do all these other things. So your thought is not so much, what am I going to do on the 1st of January? Your thought is, how am I going to survive until Christmas? So um, yeah. that it's that multiplicity of challenges. And whereas government has different departments, it has a customs department, it has a transport department, it has DEFRA, et cetera, et cetera. Again, particularly for the smaller businesses, you know, that all comes together in one or two individuals. Yeah. Um, and I think government doesn't fully appreciate because it sits surrounded by specialist teams in specialist areas and there is another point that from my civil service days, you absolutely need to join up between those different things. Um, you know, just to take a random example, food labeling, we're getting advice from FSA at the same time as we're getting advice from DEFRA. They need to talk to each other. I've had so many conversations with people at DEFRA that say, oh, well, that's for HMRC. We'll have to go and ask them. You know, that joining up of the wiring behind the scenes, and that's not a brilliant insight on my part 
you know, we've been through, government has been through any number of crises. Those lessons should be there in the manual, that these are things that you need to do and, and get ready. Every crisis evolves in a different way. But whereas COVID is a true crisis, um, Brexit is something that we have actually planned for and the government has been actively working towards. So um, I think there are fewer places to hide in relation to that, because that is something, you know, it's a slight irony, taking back control. Um, you, know, you should have had control on that Brexit process from day one, because it was a voluntary act of the UK government to do it. Andrew, the PTF works with dairy, pigs and fish. Um, let's let's sidestep to Ben's neighbour, the North Sea, and talk about fish, as it can seem strange from an outsider's perspective as to why it's such a sticking point with the Brexit negotiations. Why is that, and has there been any progress lately? Right. Um, fish is a very specialised subject, Um I think one of the reasons it's so difficult is because, if you like, it's a kind of poster child of, of Brexit. All human life is is there in, in fish. Um, it, it's, a, it's part of the food industry. It's an economic activity. Um, it supports um, coastal communities where there isn't much else in the way of employment going on. Um, but, you know, we are an island nation, proud island nation, Nelson, Raleigh, great, whatever, you know, and it's quite ironic that yesterday the Prime Minister made a great statement about rebuilding the British Navy. Um, that won't be done in time to patrol our fishing limits. Um, but I think it's, it's totemic. It's, you know, the idea of taking back control, what more visible way of taking back control than, uh, re well, it's not even reassuming because, I mean, it's, it's too too long to explain, um, but we've never actually had a 200-mile limit because when we joined the EU, we became part of the collective EU 200-mile limit. And fishermen have a long memory because it's not a job that you apply for on a Monday morning. You know, it's a way of life. It's something you're born into. Um, and for many, sadly, it's a way of death as well. I mean, it's a, it's a real, it's the last of the hunter-gatherer. It's very visceral. Um, you know, it's very emotional. And I think all that is there wrapped up in a big Union Jack um, or indeed a Scottish saltire or whatever. Um, but it, it's about identity. It's about sovereignty. It's about ownership. And it's about writing what they perceive to be a glaring injustice that when we joined the EU, we kind of gave up our entitlement to a 200 mile zone and we got into a system of sharing quotas, sharing responsibility for something that countries like Norway, Iceland, New Zealand, everybody, all other, particularly island nations, have always had because they did that from, from the outset. So that is why I think it's, it's so pivotal. Um, and it's, you know, it, it was part of every... Um, every politician's sort of portfolio of, of reasons why uh, advocating for Brexit, it was about taking back control and what more physical demonstration of that. Uh, and also, dare I say it, slightly xenophobic, you know, kicking out the foreigners. You know, why should French fishermen come and fish our fish close to our shores? So it's that level of sort of emotion and passion that is bound up in that 
Why it's so difficult to resolve is that um, it's entirely right that having left the EU, international law says we are fully entitled to do all of the above. We will have a 200-mile zone. We do become a sovereign, independent coastal state, and we can determine who comes into our waters and what they take and on what terms. That's incontrovertible in, in international law. The EU see it totally differently. They say, fine, that's the legal position. You may have ownership, but it's up to you what you do with it. And we are asking you, um, perhaps not that nicely, where the EU is saying, well, but the problem is we've had people whose living for the last 40 odd years has depended on access to your waters. And if you want to have continuing access to our single market and you want to trade with us on tariff-free terms, we would quite like to continue to fish on your in your waters on similar terms to the ones we've enjoyed for the last 40 years. So you have a completely maximalist position on both sides. You have a UK position which starts off saying it's all ours, kick everybody else out, we decide. And then you have an EU position that is diametrically opposed, which says, well, actually, we want status quo. Now, in any negotiation, there is a meeting point somewhere. Um, but when you're starting from two polar extremes, it can take you quite a while to get to a meeting point. And also, if on both sides, you have headlined as a political objective, either the exclusivity argument or the <laughs> continuity argument, explaining how you ended up somewhere in the middle is quite a political challenge. And then just very briefly, just to round this off, the other great irony of all this is that even if we doubled, trebled, quadrupled our catches in the areas around the, the UK, we don't have a market for that fish. Because believe it or not, 80% of what we catch at the moment, we export. And we export to the EU. And two thirds of what we eat, we import, and not from the EU. And the reason for that is that they are completely different species. It's not like milk or meat. You know, people in the UK don't like to eat herring and mackerel and brown crab yeah. and some of the shellfish, for which there is a huge market in the EU. So the other bit of this argument, although the, the tariffs on fish would be part of a, a free trade agreement, what the EU is not too subtly saying is, if you keep us out of your waters, don't expect to come into our market. Um, and so you, you end up with that position that if we get back control, but have nowhere to sell the fish, the industry is, is hold below the waterline anyway. Mm. So that's a very nutshell description, but it is extremely difficult. And I think this way may well be the last piece of the jigsaw, if indeed the jigsaw is to be completed. Yeah. Because I think part of the problem is, I mean, it's not just political. Um, it is economic for those involved in the industry. And I think sometimes it's portrayed, it's just that nasty Mr. Macron. It's not. It's the Irish. It's the Danes. It's the Belgians. It's the Dutch. There's a whole suite of North Sea coastal countries that have every bit as much interest in this as, as, as the French. So it's very difficult. It's very challenging. Um, and we will see how we go. Hmm. Absolutely. Andrew, the time frame is now very short, as we know. And before we started recording, um, you alluded to the fact that um, the, the talks themselves are stalling for reasons. Um, do you do you think that there will be progress and will actually we will get a deal 
or is it realistically too late now to feasibly expect any sort of agreement? Um, the short answer is I wish I knew. Um, it's not too late in political terms. Um, you know, and, and, until you get to the the, the, the point where the, the clock stops, and of course, in Brussels they are past masters at, at stopping the clock or adding a little bit of extra time, further penalty shootout at the end or whatever. Um, so, in a political sense, it, it's it's not too late. While while you're still talking, it's still possible. Um, where I think we are at or it may be past the point of no return is actually having an orderly and I, I use the word transition advisedly but having an orderly implementation of whatever might or might not be agreed because unless there is a legal extension to that 31st of December in some shape or form you know we do cease to be at the moment in the transition period we are still effectively members of the single market and the customs union that legally changes at um uh, one minute past 11 o'clock here which is midnight brussels time another irony we're not on the same page on 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 the clock uh which is ticking very loudly um so i think you know, there, there is there are real problems. Um, we haven't got time on this call to talk about Northern Ireland, but that's a whole chapter that's as difficult as fish for for different reasons, but equally founded in his history and identity and political sensitivity. And so, I think we are at the point where even if um, a deal were to be announced at lunchtime today, to have everybody knowing what they're doing on the first of January, every piece in place so that things flow seamlessly. No, it's already too late for that. Um, so, um, and it's it's equally too late if there is to be no deal and both sides are going to start levying tariffs on trade flows in both directions. Again, the, the, the IT systems, the physical means of doing that from the 1st of January don't exist yet. So, um, yeah, that's part of, of the mix. And the, the politicians, I think, have got to decide, firstly, do they actually want to do the deal? I mean, I think there is a deal there to be done. You know, with anything, you can always meet somewhere in the middle. It is how realistically you can sell that meeting point to your constituents back home and credibly claim a triumph. Because, again, this is one of the difficulties of this negotiation. My perception, and I mean this not as a political comment, not as remainer, remona, whatever. But, you know, when you go from a free and frictionless relationship to something different, it is kind of damage limitation. It is a bit lose-lose. Um, you can't pretend it's going to be better than what you had before. You can look to opportunities elsewhere in the world, fine. But in terms of your relationship with the EU, it's not going to be as good as it was up to this, this point. Um, and, you know, how you... And that makes... The, a deal rather harder to sell because you can't come back saying um, it, it's the, the it's the having the cake and eating it um you know both sides can't sort of you know do cheerleading acts on both sides of the channel saying we've got our cake and eating it and what's more we've stopped them having their cake that's just not the real world um you need a grown-up compromise you need to recognize that you know in any compromise not everyone gets everything that they they want that's quite difficult to manage in a political process 
uh, with all the, the sort of the baggage of the emotion around this. And in the middle of a crisis when everybody's economies are being impacted by forces entirely outside our, our control. So very difficult politically. I understand that. But it's say in terms of practicalities, getting things ready for day one, I think we are already too late for that. Um, so what we would be looking for, either with a deal or no deal, would actually be, and I think the word at the moment is pragmatism in how you actually manage that from day one. But again, people don't want to articulate that at the moment because our government in particular has made so much play of not extending. You know, the deadline is a deadline, you know, right or wrong, and we will prosper mightily outside. So the shutters come down on the 31st of December, come what may, and we get on with whatever it is. You've got to somehow, again, manage expectations around that Otherwise, things will grind to a halt. Uh, and again, ironically, you know, what better time of the year for the food industry than, than on New Year's Day? Um, <laughs> that, that's the point when the shutters come down. So very difficult. But if you're asking me, you know, do I, I mean, I, I've been saying to everyone, well, for a long time, I've, I've gone up and down from the, the 50-50 or whatever, but I think I'm back at 50-50 again. It, it's really too close to call. What about the impact of no deal on dairy generally? Um, and secondly, um, in your view, how prepared are dairy companies uh, for a no deal Brexit? In real world terms, you know, to get to, you know, I've said the same thing um, to, to government around the, the, the COVID and the impact on food service. You can't turn off a switch on a dairy cow and stop it producing milk just because its route to market has gone. Equally, there isn't a booster switch on a cow that is going to suddenly double or treble milk production to fill a gap left by uh, imports that you shut out through, through tariffs. With the best will in the world, it will take you two or three years um, to, to build up the supply on the animal side. You then got to match that with processing capacity um, in order to do something with that milk. That takes physical in, uh, finance and investment but also it takes labor. Uh, you've got to have people prepared to work in the factories. So, you know, if you had, you know, two or three years lead time, um, yes, that might be a, a feasible argument. But the idea that um, literally from one day to the next, um, because let's not kid ourselves, the tariffs in, in the dairy sector, the, e, the EU's external common external tariff, and its mirror image in the new UK global tariff, those are deterrent levels. They're not levels, you know, most industrial tariffs are sort of somewhere in, in single figures. The motor industry, is, where it's around 10%, is saying 10% is absolutely going to kill a lot of trade. Dairy, we're talking 30, 40, 50, depending on your on the, the particular product. Meat, you're talking 80, 90, 100% tariff. Uh, and of course, don't forget dairy and meat go together. You know, you don't. You know, um, so it's all part of of, of the livestock sector. So, um, yeah, theoretical is one thing. Real world is another. And we live in the real world. Well, that's all we have time for. But a big thank you to our guests today, Andrew Kike and Chris Walkland. Yes.
huge amount in that episode thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend we hope that this episode has given you some food for thought regarding brexit it's definitely given me that um, and please do continue the conversation on social media and copy us in if by chance you haven't found us through twitter perhaps you received the link through the kite mailing list or maybe you happened across us on spotify or apple podcasts you can follow kite on twitter at kite consulting Chris, Will and I will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.